This is Seeger Gray and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Public parkland can be sold to a private developer for a new golf course. That's according to a ruling released today from the Wisconsin Supreme Court. The court's conservative majority struck down a challenge by a conservation group to the state's decision to sell five acres of parkland to a private high-end golf course near Kohler. Friends of the Black River Forest argued that the deal would deprive the use of usable parkland and reduce animal and plant habitats. The AP reports that the decision overturns a standard used by courts in Wisconsin since 1975 to determine when the public has standing to challenge agency decisions. And it was a busy day for the state Supreme Court, which also ruled unanimously to uphold a 2019 conviction of a Milwaukee man whose arrest was facilitated by gunshot location technology known to be unreliable. The ruling reverses a lower court ruling that found the Milwaukee man shouldn't have been stopped by police who made the arrest because of technology called shot spotter. That technology is designed to detect gunshots and generates those reports to police, but it also registers other loud noises as gunshots and does not identify shooters. The man was detained by police 100 feet from the site of a shot spotter report near his home. He maintains he was out looking for his girlfriend, but Wisconsin's high court found the technology reliable enough to provide probable cause for an arrest, reports the Associated Press. A loud explosion on Madison's near west side yesterday was caused due to steam, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. More specifically, it was due to a malfunctioning steam pressure monitoring device at UW-Madison's heating and cooling plant. Workers were doing a safety check on the steam system when a monitoring device accidentally activated the emergency system. This prompted a lot of hot pressurized steam to be released all at once, resulting in boom. Workers were able to fix the issue and no one was injured. And finally, today's COVID numbers. There were 1,738 confirmed COVID cases in Wisconsin yesterday, with an average of 12% of all COVID tests coming back positive this past week. Additionally, there were four new deaths from the virus in Wisconsin yesterday. Here in Dane County, there were 194 new cases of the virus reported yesterday. And now, on to today's top stories. After Roe v. Wade was overruled by the U.S. Supreme Court last week, Wisconsin immediately reverted back to its 19th century ban on most abortions that contains a vague exception for the life of the mother. The result is in legal limbo, and the law is now being challenged by State Attorney General Josh Call. But it's again brought to light still other laws on the books that pose risk to pregnant women in Wisconsin. WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout has more. When Tammy Lorcher entered the Mayo Clinic in Eau Claire in 2014, she was looking for help with a thyroid issue. She told her doctor that she had been self-medicating with marijuana and methamphetamine. While at the clinic, she took a pregnancy test and found that she was 14 weeks pregnant. After she refused to enter a drug treatment program, Lorcher was arrested and held in county jail for 18 days. 
The reason? Wisconsin's Act 292, also known as the Unborn Child Protection Act or the Cocaine Mom Law. The law, which has been on the books since 1998, allows a court to detain a pregnant person on the suspicion of alcohol or drug use. Afsha Malik is with the National Advocates for Pregnant Women, which has been working to undo the law for some time. Essentially, what it does is that it permits juvenile courts to take physical custody of an unborn child um, and thereby physically detain a pregnant person on the suspicion that a person is pregnant and has consumed or has or maybe has consumed alcohol or a controlled substance during their pregnancy. Lortcher ended up challenging the law and in 2017, a federal judge declared it unconstitutional and suspended its enforcement, saying it was, quote, overly broad. But that ruling was vacated just a year later on appeal to the U.S. Seventh Circuit Court. The court found that the case was moot after Lortcher moved out of Wisconsin. So today, that law is still on the books, and it's still being enforced. Each year for the past five years, more than 400 women have been detained or put on house arrest out of suspicion that they've consumed drugs or alcohol. That's according to statistics from the Wisconsin Department of Children and Families. And around 1,200 people are investigated each year under the law. And while the fetus is guaranteed a lawyer, the person pregnant is not, often being left without any legal representation. Here's Afsha Malik again. Basically, there is there's a low bar for confinement. So to initially hold an expectant mother in custody, um, they only need probable cause um, that there was a substantial risk to the fetus's health. And so that that kind of brings in more mothers into the system. Rachel Lowe voluntarily went to a hospital in Waukesha in 2005 to seek help for opioid addiction. When it was found that she was pregnant, hospital staff alerted the police, who held her for around 12 days without counsel. When a doctor eventually testified that she did not significantly risk the health of the fetus, she was released. Last week's Supreme Court ruling, which overturned Roe v. Wade, meant that Wisconsin reverted back to the previous law on the books. That law is an 1849 ban on all abortions, except if the life of the mother is threatened. Malik says that there is a link between Wisconsin's harsh abortion ban and Act 292. What we have seen in our study, uh, in our work, is that typically the states that have the most restrictive access to abortion um, are also the sites where there is higher criminalization for pregnancy. So a little different than Act 292, but essentially what we know is that in those kind of cases, there's going to be more punitive responses and punitive actions to pregnant people in general. And that can be in terms of criminalizing them through the criminal system for behavior that you know, they may allegedly be doing while they're pregnant or for their pregnancy outcome. Wisconsin is one of four states that have laws that allow county officials to detain pregnant people suspected of using illicit drugs. The other three are North and South Dakota and Minnesota. Meanwhile, other states have experimented with criminalizing substance abuse during pregnancy. A former Tennessee law made it a crime to use drugs while pregnant. That fetal assault law was discontinued after two years after legislators acknowledged that impacted people were scared away from seeking prenatal care. Meanwhile, a similar bill advanced in the Wyoming legislature earlier this year. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout.
In keeping with a string of high-profile decisions, the U.S. Supreme Court released another ruling today. This decision limits the ability of the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate emissions from power plants, but it also has broader implications for administrative agencies and the fight against climate change. For more, we go to WORT reporter Cameron Costanzo. The U.S. Supreme Court released a decision today that will muzzle the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to implement policy to fight climate change. The case, West Virginia v. EPA, asked whether the EPA had the ability to regulate carbon dioxide emissions from power plants and steer states' energy supplies explicitly toward renewables. In a 6-3 decision, the Supreme Court sided with West Virginia. Jennifer Giegrich is the Government Affairs Director at Wisconsin Conservation Voters. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court just overtly prioritized polluters over the health and well-being of our communities. And it is very, very, very troubling. In this ruling, the court shifts the onus of emissions regulations onto Congress. And so there's a couple things um, that our members of Congress can do in light of today's ruling. One, um, we need Congress to pass the Climate Reconciliation Bill that's currently um, before the Senate. Senator Tammy Baldwin has been amazing uh, on supporting this climate package and clean energy package. Unfortunately, but not surprisingly, uh, Senator Ron Johnson has not. Um, but the second thing um, that members of Congress can do is expand and rebalance the U.S. Supreme Court. The ruling denies the EPA the ability to make strict emissions regulations on carbon dioxide from power plants, but the EPA still has control over the plant's air pollution. Steph Tai is a law professor at UW-Madison, where they teach environmental and administrative law. Yeah, so they can't regulate them as the focus of the regulation, but they can sort of tangentially regulate them by regulating the emissions of other stuff coming from power plants. So, for example, um, power plants emit a lot of particulate matter, and that is considered a pollutant under the Clean Air Act. It causes asthma and other types of problems. If they were to have more stringent regulations for particulate matter, um, it would effectively also lower greenhouse gas emissions. The case originates with the Obama administration's Clean Power Plan, which sought to mobilize the EPA to combat fossil fuel power generation. This plan was rolled back by the Trump administration and replaced with a plan that was similar but less aggressive. It was this Trump administration plan that West Virginia and other states petitioned against. The big thing that the EPA was trying to do under the Obama administration clean power plan, they wanted to say, focus not just on the individual power plant at a facility, but the overall power generation in a particular state. So they wanted to say, okay, look, it doesn't matter if we put so many controls on this particular facility. What really we need to do is to put, you know, to move the whole state towards a different energy kind of grid. This past April, Governor Evers introduced Wisconsin's Clean Energy Plan, which seeks to cut half of carbon emissions by the end of the decade. In some ways, it might not be that big a deal for Wisconsin. So, so a lot of the Clean Power Plan was designed to push states away from reliance on coal-fired plants and move instead towards either natural gas or to um, renewables. In 1997, um, we were relying on our grid on coal-fired plants to generate electricity. 
um, in 2020 is down to like 39%, um, despite, you know, the Clean Air Act being stayed and all that. So in some ways, general market forces are already pushing things away from coal-fired plants. And this could be, you know, the, this, this, the coal-fired plants, you know, litigation in this whole area is kind of a last gasp anyway. Experts say today's decision could come with severe implications for the administrative state. It could severely weaken the ability of federal agencies to impose regulations on issues of health, safety, and the environment. Locally, governmental leaders objected to the decision. In a statement, Dane County Executive Joe Parisi called the ruling disappointing, saying it would drag the United States environmental policy back to the days of pollution and smog. Meanwhile, Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway described the effects of the ruling as far-reaching and devastating to our ability to fight climate change, saying in part that the case, quote, makes our current reality very clear. The U.S. Supreme Court is acting as a conservative activist body set on redefining public policy. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Cameron Costanzo. It's now 6.19 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Just outside the city of Oregon lies Deer Park, a Tibetan Buddhist center of worship. In part one of the episode of Our Faith Communities, contributor David Ahrens attends a service at Deer Park to learn more about their beliefs. I'm not a religious person. I grew up in a home that was Jewish, but largely non-observant. As a child, I was drawn to the mystery of Hebrew prayer, which I didn't understand. But throughout my life, I've had questions about religious faith. Walk around any neighborhood and you'll come upon a church, a mosque, or a synagogue. I wanted to have a sense of what happens inside these places of worship, the sounds of the prayers and calls to faith. One quarter of Americans say they do not identify with any religion. I assume in our area the number is higher, and within the wart listener community, higher still. But our friends, co-workers, and relatives are among the faithful, even if they don't talk about it. Perhaps these short segments will give us an understanding of the faith communities around us. This Deer Park is not the outdoor fan center for Bucks fans. It's the faith community for Western and Tibetan practitioners of the Mahayana tradition of Buddhism. Deer Park was established over 40 years ago in conjunction with a visit by the Dalai Lama. For decades, the spiritual leader of Deer Park was Geshe Sopa, who was, as an early teacher of the Dalai Lama, fled Tibet with him following its takeover by the Chinese in 1959. Deer Park is named for the site where it is said the Buddha gave his first teaching after his enlightenment. The center is located in rural Oregon amidst horse farms and large estates. It has two large temples and living quarters for the monks and resident students who study and train. Temple services typically begin with chanting. A simple of the Mahayana chanting service is here followed by a lecture by Geshe Sherab in Tibetan. Only a small part of his direct teaching is given here. His words are translated by a staff member, Katrina Brooks. 
The first part of the recorded teachings are concerned with having the listeners set their intention towards the path of Buddhahood. This is followed by discussion of the unique opportunity for attaining Buddhahood in this life. So, um, as uh, per, per usual, uh, we should think we should set a good motivation uh, for listening uh, to these teachings. And ideally, the highest kind of motivation that we can have is that of bodhicitta, of thinking that in order to work for the benefit of all sentient beings, I want to attain the state of perfect, complete enlightenment. And so that kind of thought, wishing to quickly attain such a state in order to be able to really fully benefit other sentient beings, this is the kind of attitude that one should have. And if you're not able to achieve such a state in this life, but rather we should be thinking about um, uh, striving over many lifetimes in future lives, continuing to work toward that kind of goal. So um, here, in order to be able to really um, most fully benefit other sentient beings, we can't really do so while we ourselves remain in samsara. There's not so much that we're able to do to benefit others as long as we ourselves are still in that kind of a state. And so we are then striving to, um, in this life as well as our future lives, strive for that kind of ability, that opportunity that Buddhahood presents. Um, for in a perfect Buddhahood, one is able to most fully, that's like the most powerful kind of state that we can achieve for benefiting others. Something where we are thinking lifetime after lifetime. Um, there's nothing like sort of higher, more perfect, more complete than that kind of knowledge of Buddhahood. And so um, in order to attain Buddhahood, we need to like train our mind, work with our mind, and sort of purify our mind. Um, those, we have these kinds of this perfect state. And so that um, is uh, how we are able then to achieve Buddhahood, to remove those kinds of obscurations, those things that we don't know in order to attain that fully enlightened state. And so with that kind of motivation, we think, well, I'm going to undertake the study of Dharma. I'm going to listen to this Dharma for the purpose of being able to remove such obscurations and ultimately achieve that perfected state of Buddhahood. No. So, um, as it says um, here, uh, we should set, uh, again, such a motivation. Um, and here, uh, uh, in the, a little bit coming up in the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, there's a verse in which uh, Shantideva says, um, It is difficult to obtain leisure again, and the presence of a Buddha is extremely hard to find. It is difficult to restrain the flood of mental distortions. Alas, suffering continues uninterruptedly. The following section is concerned with understanding the mind and the origins of suffering. The first noble truth of Buddhism is that life has inevitable suffering. The first step is to look closely and honestly at our experience and recognize this fact. If we overlook it, 
it haunts us. While we cannot overcome physical suffering, we can learn to transcend mental suffering. The second noble truth that is addressed here is that our experience of life can be viewed through a sense of self. Cravings govern our actions. Cravings arise for being rich, famous, and loved, and to avoid anything unpleasant. These cravings are the root cause of suffering. If we're only concerned with, say, feeding ourselves and clothing ourselves and making sure we have enough of this and that, this kind of the waves of our suffering will continue unabated. Um, and so, again, it doesn't uh, it's not the end of our suffering when we die, but rather we still have many sufferings left to experience. And so um, it is then. Um, the case that we should be making an effort to get at that root cause of our various suffering. It is our mind, the mind that is holding things as being like existent from their own side, holding things as truly existent. And so if we are able to eradicate that, then we can eradicate all of the subsequent suffering. Whereas if we're only sort of dealing with the, the day-to-day difficulties that we encounter, those are going to continue sort of like waves and waves of suffering. So all of our various uh, physical sufferings, all of our mental sufferings are really uh, coming forth from this not knowing the way that things really are. We're holding things to exist in one way, and they don't actually exist in that way. And so part of the problem here is that we don't realize that we are mistaken. We don't realize that this mind is uh, misperceiving various objects. Rather, we think that we are correct about these things. Um, when we see, like, say, something uh, pleasant, uh, we think that it really, truly exists like that, that it really is the source of our happiness. Um, and when we see someone that we don't like, that we consider to be an enemy, um, that uh, we think that they really exist like that from their own side and therefore give rise to all the kinds of minds of like hostility and anger and hatred and so forth. Here, uh, although um, these things appear to us to um, exist uh, somehow like in their own right, really exist as they appear, we don't um, recognize that we're mistaken about them, that we're misperceiving these things. And then we give rise to kind of attachment to it, and we can have the suffering that comes from the separation from that, or not being able to get that. And then uh, we have those situations where, say, we hold um, <clears throat> a person that we don't like, uh, we hold something to be unpleasant, and thereby, because we perceive it to be really, truly like that, and so all of these kinds of suffering from this fundamental deluded mind or mind that is mistaken with respect to its object. But when we're able to see that things don't actually exist like that, then this kind of understanding allows us to remove those kinds of obscurations. But so long as we have this kind of misperception, this mistaken mind, and we don't accept or see that it is mistaken, we are going to continue to suffer uh, without any kind of cessation to that. This ends this edition of Our Faith Communities with an edit of a teaching at Deer Park Buddhist Center. Next week, we'll hear an edited interview with Geshe Sherab and his translator, Katrina Brooks. Thanks for listening. This has been David Ahrens 
for WORT News. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with Seeger Gray. Thanks for joining us. Every other Thursday, we hear an excerpt from Out of Box, a local podcast dedicated to supporting people who are incarcerated or who have been incarcerated in the past. This week, we hear from Stay Clay, a formerly incarcerated man of 28 years who is now a peer support specialist with Anesis Therapy. Clay talks with host D. Starr about his upbringing on the streets of Milwaukee, overcoming drug addiction, and how he survived in prison for 28 years. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D. Starr, here with... Stacy Clay, a.k.a. Scatter. Yes, sir. Um, so for those that don't know you, can you give us a little bit of uh, information about yourself? Oh, yeah. I'm Stacy Clay. You know, I'm a certified peer specialist. I work at Anesis Therapy, uh, crisis management, and other things uh, with individuals, you know, teaching them skills or teaching them you know, certain things. I use the I statements to be assertive or whatever. So can you tell us a little bit about Anesis? Uh, Anesis Therapy is uh, is an all-black therapy that's uh, catering to the benefit of colored people, like not just blacks, but colors like Native Americans, anybody that's in need of therapy or help or feel like they've been in the system been marginalized or been invisible, haven't really been seen and, you know, feel like they haven't been treated appropriately. So they want to come there where they feel like they have a connection to the people, their roots, who they are, people that understand them and best can fit their needs to service their needs. So it's one of the only minority therapist places in Madison. Madison. Absolutely. So how did you get hooked up with them? Actually, I got hooked up there because my wife worked there. So my wife, she's a social worker there, you know, and she just, um, matter of fact, she just went and got her license. So, and uh, she told me about uh, a job there based on a lot of things I was doing, working, uh, my interests and the things I had with doing with young people. And she thought it'd be a good idea if I link up or put in an application to get a job there. So I just put in an application and uh, they gave me an interview and voila. Voila. Yeah, voila. <laughs> so um, let's break it down. This podcast is about, you know, helping formerly incarcerated people and incarcerated people right now. Can you give us a little bit of insight about your life and the obstacles that you've overcame and kind of give us a little bit about, you know, your story and how you became the man that you are right now? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I grew up in Milwaukee, you know, the main, main streets of Milwaukee. I, was, I started off in the area code 53206 and then you know, went from there, you know, but I, I, been, I was all around the city or whatever. But starting off early on, you know, I had some issues. You know, I was molested as a kid and that wow. led to some issues. I was bullied as a kid, you know, so I grew up in a tough neighborhood trying to learn how to fight how to be tough but it was hard to do that because I had my mother's heart you know so I was able to feel things and so it took a different trajectory but when I got in the streets and got to hanging out with friends got to do alcohol and drugs and you know because of my abuse and all the things that happened to me I ended up joining the gang and, and all these things led me to detention center children's center Wales you know ultimately prison for 28 years can you share with us a little bit about the circumstances that led you to prison I was out doing drugs I was hooked on drugs I was addicted to drugs at this point I was homeless and you know, I really didn't have a place to stay and all that kind of stuff so I was out in the streets doing drugs and um, I came back one day and um, I was staying with you know some people and I came back one day and they were up upset, mad at me, whatever. So we get into it and they tried to stab me. Well, they pulled two butcher knives on me to stab me. And because I was tweaking and I was under the influence of, you know, cocaine, rock cocaine, especially, you know, I just flipped out and grabbed a knife and stabbed them and killed them. 
as a result of that, I ended up going you, to prison for 28 years. Right. 28 you know, years. Yeah, and I pretty and, much turned myself in and did that because I knew that was wrong. I wanted to do the right thing. Plus, I was in a place where I wasn't raised like that. So, so I turned myself in and went to prison and, uh, you know, did 25 years in prison. So what was some of the obstacles that you had to overcome in prison? And what are some of the things that you've learned? Well, the obstacles I had to overcome is that I had to get to learn myself. I had to get to know myself. I had to uh, stop blaming other people for me being there. You know, I had to look at myself and what I was doing and what got me there. And I had to think about where I was going to go. Because when I first got there, I blamed everybody. I blamed my mama. I blamed the system. I blamed racism. I blamed my daddy for not being there. I blamed, you know. So it wasn't until I got the realization later on that, you know, choices have consequences. It was because of uh, a series of decisions that I made that led me to this place. You get to prison first day kind of take me through the mind state you know what how old were you i just turned 21 oh wow so and i got sentenced to 25 to life so my first day i was tweaking and tripping i couldn't even believe that i was in prison you know that was i wasn't i would have never thought my whole life as a kid that that would be my destination but i was there around all kinds of people. So it was a very new experience for me. I, I, no, I would never say I wasn't scared because I'd be alive. I'd say I wasn't scared. Absolutely. I was scared. I was apprehensive. I was nervous. I had a little anxiety. But I paid attention, you know, and I learned quick. You know, I got a lot of information from people. I see what happened to other people. I know what to do, what not to do, how to move, how to navigate. So, so yeah, I got really good at that. So we were talking behind the scenes a little bit, and you told me an interesting story where you said you were actually there when Jeffrey Dahmer was murdered in Portage. Well, yeah, I was at Portage. Uh, I was on a school unit. I was on unit two. That was uh, November 28, 1994. Yeah, wow. I remember that. It was a Monday. Matter of fact, I still remember it. I was going to school and uh, we went to school and I was in class and they told us that we had to go back. They told us it was a fog alert. And so because it was too much fog and it was security for the fence, so we were going back to the units under the impression that was a fog alert. But when we got into the cell, I was sitting in the cell. And back then, you know, every everybody used to watch Jenny Jones or you watch Ricky Lake or whatever on TV. You know, and you look at, you're in jail, so you're looking for females. You're looking at, right. the, looking at the girls. You try to watch for that. So. And a news flash came on that Jeffrey Dahmer and Jesse Anderson just got attacked at the prison and more at 12. So right away, I heard a banged on the wall. Tell my neighbor, like, Joe, you see that on the thing, man? He's like, what you talking about? man, we ain't coming back out the cell. We locked down, man. I just seen. And they was like, what? So everybody got to get on the channel was looking. You know what I'm saying? They was like, oh, man. You know, so, yeah, that's how, that's how it went down. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, you're 28 years in prison. What are some of the most impactful lessons that you would say that you learned? You know, and just uh, because people come from you and they look like you don't mean that they fight you. And those that's not ain't always against you. You know, so you have to learn that because sometimes people think because you look like me, you come from where I come from, you identify me, I can trust you. But that's not always the case. You know, everybody that look like you ain't against you because so I had to learn that. Then I had to learn things about different nationalities and I learned how to structure and how people move and ideologies and beliefs and how people think. And so once I tapped into that, I understood how to navigate and how to move. But I also understood how to help people then because I was able to see where they were weak at and the areas of where they were strong at. So did you do any of the kind of the work that you do now while you were in prison? Yeah, when I was in prison, um, I was doing domestic violence. I was an inmate. Well, I was a tutor. We call them tutors there. But I, sometimes I facilitated groups. I did the same thing for anger management. Um, oh wow you were actually a facilitator yeah inmate facilitator yeah sometimes wow. I ran the group you know myself because I also wanted I wanted to see people that look like me I wanted them to see because when we first got in prison they was like man you got to be a white boy to get this job mm -hmm. they only get these kind of jobs to white boys they will never get a job to a brother so now they get a job to a brother and I'm there and I'm in there so I want you to see what that looked like 
Because if I can do that and you can see this as a success, then this is something that you can ascend to and try to attain to navigate the movie. And where was this and when was this? We was in New Lisbon and this was like 2009. Wow. Yeah. In New Lisbon. Yeah, and I had that job for three years, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a long time. So do you feel like everything that happened while you were in prison, like all of the work that you've done prepared you for the job that you have now? In many ways, but I never saw myself doing this work on the outside. Really? I just, no, because I just didn't, I just, because of my crime, my history, my level of education, where I come from, my area, I just didn't think that I had enough credentials or that it would be a, a, a place for me to do that. So, which is so great about peer specialists or being a peer specialist because it's really about your lived experience. You don't have to have a master's degree. Well, that is your master's degree, really, technically. Oh, yeah. You know, all the things that you've been through and you got all these people that's going through these things now. You, Who better to be able to sit, to adhere, to listen to, to understand, to empathize with, and support, right? Time is... Sorry. Time, an exploration of black art in Madison, showcases the work of four African-American visual, performing, and conceptual artists. The exhibit's been running since April 1st and closes on July 6th at the Diane Baldwick Gallery on the third floor of the Madison Central Library. Curator and videographer Sophia Abrams joined 8 O'Clock Buzz's Brian Standing earlier this week. The title of this exhibit is Time Is. What is the importance of time in this exhibit? Yeah, so this exhibition is all about black art in the greater Madison community. For the past two years at UW-Madison, my research was all about black art. I made an oral history project, which then turned into two exhibitions on campus about black art, and I wanted to explore what it means to be a black artist in the greater Madison community um, black artists who didn't go to UW Madison, and then time is um, is a title that is that references Solange's 2019 album When I Get Home, and I thought this title was perfect for the show because it really just kind of makes people think about time and space and how time connects all these different. There's four artist works in the show, and how you know people can really look at a continuation of time or kind of pause in time. And I like how the title is quite ambiguous in the sense where it kind of meets people where they're at. I think one of the benefits of art exhibitions is that you come in with your own you know, perspective and then you kind of take what you can take in. And so I really just appreciate how this title allows people to just come in and really meet the art and get to know the artist as well. So tell us about the four artists you have featured in the show. Uh, what kind of work do they do? Yeah, so there's four artists in the show. There's Alice Traor, there's Simone Loris, Lawrence, there's Sharon Bird, and Tina Wilder. They were all selected in the fall of 2021, and they're all quite different. So Tina Wilder is a multidisciplinary artist. She went to school in Milwaukee and actually did a lot of performance work as well. So in the show, her work's very conceptual. She has a video work um, that deals with ancestry as well as a written piece as well. And then there's Sharon Bird. And Sharon is very much known for her portraiture. And in the show, when you enter the show, there's a whole wall with her work. She's, she uses a lot of bright colors and a lot of it just has a side profile and it's really compelling as well. Simone's work is great too because it's very iconic. So when you walk into the gallery, at the very back of the wall, there's 
Simone's purple print painting. And then she also, they also have paintings of Malcolm X and Biggie and just really iconic black figures. And then lastly, there's Alice Chaor. And Alice, her work is very much deals with portraiture as well as nature. And she uses watercolor and it's very like delicate and powerful as well. And her work's the first work that people see when they walk through the exhibition as well. And has the location in a public library attracted a different crowd? You've been open since April. Have you seen uh, a different type of crowd than you might see in a formal gallery? Yeah, I think that there's more foot traffic, I would say. In general, the response has been very positive. People, I've gotten DMs on Instagram, like, thanks so much for carrying the show. I really enjoyed it. I think so because it's at the Madison Public Library, they have a lot of events that bring people in. So perhaps people weren't necessarily coming to see the art, but then once they were there, they saw the art. So it's a fun surprise. Or like, um, there was a zine fest in April um, last weekend. There was a queer prom in the space. And I think that it just essentially is able to bring in a larger audience because people traditionally maybe weren't trying to come to the exhibition or didn't know about it, but now they can go to the library. So I think, yeah, it's been great to see um, the diverse crowd who's been able to come see it at the library. Now, the artists in the show originally hail from uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, South Carolina, Peoria, and Chicago. You yourself come from Minneapolis. Does that mm-hmm. regional perspective uh, sort of, in, is that sort of an outside look at Madison, and how is that reflected in the art? Yeah, I think I definitely have an outside look in the sense where, you know, I came to Madison to go to UW-Madison. I was very much involved with the UW-Madison art scene at the time. And from that, you know, when you're on campus, you might not be involved in the greater Madison community. And I think that I was trying to find, my research was all about what it meant to be and still means to be a black artist on campus. And I was curious to know about what that would mean outside in the larger Madison community. And I think, you know, had I lived here my whole life, I hope I would have been a bit more tapped into it. But also, I don't really know if I would have been either because a lot of the artists who I talked to and all the artists in the show, they didn't actually know each other beforehand. So I think that kind of speaks to perhaps even if you still like live here, there still could be like this outsiderness or rather like still community building needing to happen. Um, but I do think like, you know, being from Minneapolis and not being familiar with the Madison art scene definitely pushed me to really research whether that's, you know, Googling something or looking to social media to look for like collectives and whatnot. But it was definitely advantageous when I was curating the show because I was able to kind of look an ego's perspective and then look inward as well. Um, And it's been great too, because now the artist have been able to be in community with each other, too. Is there a critique? Uh, Are there there political critiques in the art? Um, It's really, I mean, I think this show is very much like, potentially, yes. I wanted it to be a very collaborative show in the sense where when we were talking to the artists, when we selected them in the fall, I really wanted it to be about them um, and their work. And from that, I think... On the one hand, there is an inherent critique of, like, systems and whatnot, or just, like, radical acts in the sense of, like, having 
black people in positions of rest and power in the show. That's not something you normally see at a museum. Of course, that's not something historically black artists have been able to create. I think also inherently there is a critique just by like the existence of the show to push for more black art spaces and more black art exhibitions and also having more exhibitions that don't inherently deal with trauma as well. Or like if they do, that's maybe not the main focal point of their work. So I would say in terms of the show, I mean, I guess it stems from a necessity to have more black art spaces and more black art shows. But the main like focus, I wasn't like, I'm going to critique things, but rather I was looking like, how can I make community with art? Because art galleries can be a great community building space. All right. We've been speaking with Sophia Abrams, curator of Time Is, an exploration of black art in Madison. The exhibit runs through July 6th on the third floor of the Madison Central Library. For more information, you can go to madisonbubbler.org. Sophia Abrams, thanks for joining us on the 8 o'clock buzz. It's now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. You've got your tools, fabric, and you've picked out a pattern, so what's next? In this episode of Radio Chipstone, The Sewing Saga, retired educator, artist, and sewing mentor Joe Jensen forces contributor Jennifer Fields to do something she hates, read instructions. When you buy a pattern, on the back of it, suggests the type of fabrics to use and notions what a notion is is like thread and buttons and zippers and bias tape and an elastic and things like that that might go into the dress and then there's a size and you figure out which size you need to get for yourself and then there's different styles of the dress most patterns have maybe two or three different ways that you could make it, like you could make it short or mid-length or maybe long-sleeved or three-quarter sleeves with pockets, without pockets, that sort of thing. So there's like, and that's something important to think about when you're um, getting your pattern ready is which pattern pieces do you need? Because if you are doing style A, you might not need pattern piece number 25. So these are things that you have to bear in mind. Um, it gives you finished garment measurements, usually how big it's going to be around your bust and your waist and your hips and oftentimes um, how long it's going to be from like your neck to your knees sort of thing. It, it often tells you how many pieces are in there so you don't lose them. Then you open it up and there's some paper in there that's kind of like newsprint and that's your instructions. And then there's paper in there that is kind of usually a, a brownish, very thin tissue paper stuff, and those are your pattern pieces. And what you need to do before you cut your pattern pieces out is to read the instructions. And that's the worst part. It is. It's boring. It's like, I want to get to this. I just want to take out my thing. It, well, you know, if you can save yourself a lot of grief snapping this open and refreshing your memory about what's going to happen first and what you need to go through. Okie doke. So you, you open this up and it shows you the different versions of the dress, A, B, and C. It shows you the different pattern pieces. And this is a pretty simple dress. There's basically seven pieces to it. Then there's a section that says general directions. And this is something that any new sewer must 
understand and get to memorize. And those are different symbols and what they mean, like the grain line. And um, there's like these little arrow symbols and stuff. And if you don't know what those mean, then you got to look it up. And now with everybody having the inner tubes in the palm of their hand, it's a heck of a lot easier. I mean, if you don't have grandma or mom to show you how to do this stuff, you can watch a, a show on the inner tubes and learn how to sew like that. They, there's pictures on here of showing how you um, cut off excess fabric around a seam, like when you have to flip something inside out, like say collars oftentimes in dresses have like an interfacing, which is a piece of fabric that goes inside to make the collar look a little stiffer to give it more body. There's a reason for trimming that because if you don't trim it, you turn it inside out, you can't get a really tight corner, you know, like in a collar or it looks lumpy. And oftentimes after you turn these things right side out, there's top stitching, which is exactly what it sounds like you're doing. You're doing a, a stitch close to the edge on top that kind of gives a little detail to it. And it also makes it s stay flat. So there's there's a definite reason that the, the they're giving you these instructions to do something a particular way because it's going to end up looking right if you do it that way. You take shortcuts, you don't know. You take shortcuts. Is <laughs> you get shortcuts. Yeah. It's like, did you make that? <laughs> oh, you made that, didn't you? So uh, let's see. And it shows you how to shorten and lengthen. Because let's say you were very tall and you wanted to make this dress, but you wanted to make sure that the length of the dress was going to, or pants, was going to be where you needed it to be. And you found that when you held the pattern up to your body, which is another thing you should do once you get it cut out, is that if you'd cut out the pattern as is, they'd be high waters, all right? Basically, what you have to do is take and slice your pattern kind of close to uh, where the hem it's, it's usually about two, three inches up from where the hem would be. And, you know, splice in another piece of paper and tape it uh, to, to, make the, to make it longer and stuff. And it shows you reversal of that if you're shorter and you need to make something shorter, you basically fold up the pattern and tape it in place to make it the length that you want it to be. So we just have basic things here. So we have general directions, sewing, and then special notes, and then cutting layouts. And then it just sounded, looks like it just goes right into the how-to of it all. Yep. Yep, yep. And like I said before, with this one, you know, there's, if you're going to do the tricolor one, that is uh, look C. So if you're going to do look C, it will tell you on here, you start where it says the C dress, and it will show you how you lay out the pattern pieces on the fabric. Okay, and with the dress C, there's like three different colors fabric, so it's showing you, you know, for the top part, you need this much fabric, for the pockets, you need this much fabric, for the bottom part, you need this much fabric, and it shows you how to lay out the pattern pieces in order to um, get the most material for for your uh, money there. Let's see. Um, you know, there's a lot more instruction 
Because I had opened other patterns that were used patterns, and this mm-hmm. thing was missing. This guide was missing. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it couldn't be like I, but I also don't remember this guy because I always had my mother. Like she was always right there. So she was just like, get the pattern. Like we yes. just immediately start with the pattern because she knew all this stuff. Yeah, and, and I am, I do that myself sometimes and then wish I would have just like slowed the heck down. But it's like a, something like stay stitching. What the heck is stay stitching? And it's basically sort of a basting stitch. Well, bigger stitches that and a basting stitch is a big stitch whereas when you're sewing something together on a sewing machine you want to stay together you're using a much smaller stitch that's probably maybe an eighth of an inch or smaller okay and what stay stitching is let's say you're making a collar on something the part that's going to go around your neck you don't want that area to distort so the reason why you stay stitch is to hold that in shape because when you cut that rounded area there, you got that bias thing going on. And what can happen is if you don't do that and you're moving your fabric around and pinning and stuff, you can start stretching that out and then it gets distorted and all of a sudden you go, why do I got this pucker up here? Because you didn't stay stitch. So yeah. basically what you're telling me, Joe, is that much like an Ikea <laughs> assemblage, I need, to, I need to follow every single thing that it says on this pattern. Well, the thing is, is you do that and you learn by doing that. And then just like your mama later on, after after you kick through a couple of these patterns, like, oh, I got simplicity. I know what they're going to do. I know what's coming up next. And after you've made several dresses where you've had to stay stitch or put a set in a, a sleeve or make darts or things like that you know you know the the language so and you know when you're all done you can say I made that and it looks like I didn't <laughs> <laughs> you can hold <laughs> for WORT I'm Jennifer Fields and that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6 your reporter tonight was Cameron Costanzo. Special thanks to feature contributors David Ahrens, D. Star, Brian Standing with the 8 O'Clock Buzz, and Jennifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Ms. Shali Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Seeger Gray. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Good night. W-O-R-T, Madison. Madison.